Thank you. Good morning. I want to remind you that tonight at 6 p.m., uh, we're going to have a special send-off for Jason Neese and Britton. We'll be here with him. It's going to be a great time together. Uh, we put it tonight because last week, which would have been appropriate, Jason was in town to officiate a wedding ceremony. So that's why we originally thought, oh, the 15th of January would be perfect. He'll be here. Britton will be here. You know, But uh, it was a three-day weekend. Uh, we had high school winter camp. Uh, satellite lead team was away. So we put it today. Isn't that great? But the 49ers didn't get the memo. So <laughs> hope you can be with us and rely on your recording devices for that fourth quarter. Uh, this morning we're starting a new series on the book of Acts. Uh, becoming the people of God, the, the church of God. Becoming the church, the first Jesus people. Uh, stories about the first Jesus people. And so we'll be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. In your bulletin, we're uh, coordinating what we're doing here with what we're gonna be doing in our small groups throughout the week. And so the small groups will be digging into the same material that we're gonna be covering and, and digging a little deeper and taking it a little deeper in terms of its application and how they apply it to what the Lord uh, is doing in their lives and how they can live out the gospel and be a Jesus person, you know, a witness for Jesus Christ in their home, at work, at school. And in your bulletin, there's a, a worksheet. It, you know, I was looking at it, I put this thing together, it's, it's kind of bland. Maybe next week I'll use a bigger font or s some butterflies or something, make it really snazzy. Uh, but if you, if you do not have one of these and would like one, they are in the bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin this morning, the guys are going to pass them out. So if you just indicate by raising your hand real quick, they'll, they'll see that you get one of these uh, worksheets so you can kind of follow along and take some notes from Acts and some of the other things that we're going to look at this morning. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Let's... Uh, Let's open with prayer, and I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. Heavenly Father, fill me with your spirit. I submit my life to your control. I ask your thoughts to be my thoughts. May your power be my power. May the direction of my life follow in your footsteps. Father, I want you to be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I hadn't planned to pray like that, but as we were worshiping, it came over me that 
the closest disciples of Jesus, those who already identified with him, those that will meet in this very first chapter of Acts, could not pray that prayer. In fact, the idea that Jesus is here, that is in his spirit, that we're never apart from the very presence of God, that's not something that they could know with certainty. These are things that are astonishing. And sometimes we take them for granted. And here we see how it all begins. It begins in the very heart of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. It is from his very direction that he asks those nearest to him And this, after his death and resurrection, he asks them to wait for the Spirit. They are the first witnesses. And a witness is somebody who can give a first-hand account of what he or she has seen, has heard, has experienced. a first-hand account of what he or she has seen, heard, experienced. And when that is given, it's a piece of evidence. We call it a testimony. We're most accustomed to this in court. When somebody is called to bear witness, they give testimony. And that is a form of evidence. Evidence that attests to something that others have not experienced firsthand. The book of Acts is a testimony. It in itself is evidence to something we ourselves have not experienced firsthand but it accumulates, it compiles, it is an account of first-hand experience. Those first Jesus people. And the book of Acts is written to Theophilus. If you would turn to the Gospel of Luke, we're going to read the first four verses of chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the first of a two-volume work written by Luke. And here's how it begins. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now there's a reference to God's acts in their midst. They're witnesses to these things. That's what Luke is pointing to. And it reaches back into the scriptures, into the Old Testament. Things foretold are being fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, 
since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The Gospel of Luke and what we call the Gospel of Luke and what we call the Acts of the Apostles is one continuous work written to Theophilus for this purpose, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's a testimony, it's an evidence to things that Theophilus himself has been taught. And as we go along, we'll learn a little bit more about Theophilus. We'll draw some inferences. But Luke is writing one history. The history of what God is doing, what is being fulfilled in our midst. The Gospel of Luke covers the life of Jesus, his earthly public ministry. It's about 33 years. And then the Acts of the Apostles covers about another 33 years, so about 4 B.C. to 62 A.D. It's all one story. It's the history of God's saving acts in Jesus continued amongst the Jesus people becoming the church. And I'll have a little more to say about that in a moment. But there's a sense, both in the gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles, that the major actor is God. And the Holy Spirit, the very pneumatic power of God, is especially at work in Jesus. And as we're going to see today, that work continues through the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit will mark the people of God, the true people of God, the Jesus people becoming the church, which is another name. The word church is another name for the true people of God as it's used in the Bible. In our society, we use a church of a building, of that place over there and that place over there, but I think we're, our sense of what the church is and who we are will grow even as the church grows. Because in the very beginning, as we'll see, these followers of Jesus, I mean, this, this begins just in the very year of Jesus' death. He's raised, and as we'll see, he appears to those closest to him, and he has a very important message for these eyewitnesses. And if I kind of take things out of turn just to make the point, they are, they are called to be witnesses. Jesus himself says, you are to be my witnesses. Wait for the Spirit. And in this, we'll learn something very important about the nature and the character of our own Christian walk and who we are in the plan of God.
But Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, as it has come to be called, is not a sermon. It's, it really is a testimony. It's an account, as he says in verse 2, of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In fact, Luke himself is part of that history. You'll run, when you get to chapter 16 and following, there'll be sections where he'll use the personal pronoun we. He's including himself in those events. He's done careful research. He has interviewed, he has met with and heard firsthand from those whom we're reading about. And he compiles this narrative account of how things unfolded, beginning here in the Acts of the Apostles with Jesus' appearance to his first disciples. But all this, that Theophilus, and then therefore you and me, that we may know with certainty the things that we have been taught. So Luke and Acts is what God has fulfilled in Jesus and then his church. And you might ask, well, why is this not kept apart? Because when you're reading through your New Testament, uh, you start with Matthew, and then the Gospel of Mark, and then the Gospel of Luke, and then the Gospel of John, and then Acts. Well, all the Gospels are kind of put together. It would have been nice if we just had one continuous work. But it was impossible because a standard scroll, they didn't have books. I was just thinking again this morning, how convenient to have this all. You can get them in smaller versions, and now some of you have the the Bible on your smartphones or on your tablets. You certainly have it on your computer. You can do searches. Everything is laid out in chapters and verse and headings and short notes and the whole bit. But at that time, they didn't have that. A a standard scroll was 40 feet. The Gospel of Luke itself, based on the number of words, is computed to cover 35 feet of a standard scroll. The Acts of the Apostles would be 32 feet. So, Theophilus was presented probably with a superscription, Luke to Theophilus, two scrolls. He was probably the patron who had kind of supported Luke in this work, in making this possible, because it was a great undertaking. And that's why we have it in two works. If we lost if we didn't have the Gospel of Luke, if, if somehow that Gospel had been lost, we would still have Matthew and Mark and John. But listen, if we, if we lost Acts, we would really be impoverished because Acts tells us about that. What happened in the earliest days within the first year and then the first 33 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. These are our spiritual roots as well. 
the early history of Jesus' people becoming the church. And the main point here in chapter 1 is that Luke tells Theophilus that the first Jesus people, and he brings out that they were led by the apostles, first-hand witnesses to Jesus and endowed with God's Spirit to be the very continuation of God's divine plan for including the whole world. And so, if we start with the history, let's start at verses 1 through 5 of Acts. I'd like you to read it with me. In the former book, Theophilus, I'm reading from the New International Version. In the former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. There's an implication that that's going to continue. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. I think it's important to understand that the word instructions in the New International Version, which is plural, is, is, should, is just should be translated, in, in my opinion, commandment. He gave commandment to the apostles. Because Luke is referring back to chapter, what we now know as chapter 24. He's, he's referring back to the closing words of what we call volume one of this two-volume part. He's summarizing chapter 24, particularly verses 44 through 49. Let's look at that for a moment. So now you've got to flip back. You know, this is, I, I know this to be a little harder on an iPhone or a... iPad or tablet of whatever... You, look at verse 44... He, now, this is, this is after the resurrection. And here are, Luke's going to tell us in Acts that there was a period of 40 days in which Jesus appeared to his apostles and disciples. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 70 says that Jesus appeared to more than 500. So we know that there were a number of people who were followers of Jesus who had some firsthand witness to Jesus' resurrection. But repeatedly, he appears and spends time with his apostles, those 12 disciples who spent so much of their three years with, uh, with Jesus. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power, clothed with power from on high. Let's go back to Acts. Verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Convincing proofs has a pretty rich history in general Greek use, but these are the kinds of proofs that you just can't escape, that you can't ignore, that you can't leave alone. These are the kinds of proofs that are so convincing that they change you. In other words, Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead. He whom they had crucified, whom these first followers dispirited and discouraged, as you read about earlier in chapter 24 of Luke, he appears to them and he is alive and everything is changed. And Luke continues, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now when you think about it, just in general, I, I know this is a bit, um, this may be simplifying to an extent, but I wanna, want us to get this. When you read if, or think about all that is covered, the, the history of God's dealings, the making of his people, the exodus, all the way through the Old Testament, there's a theme, the kingdom of God. I mean, what is a kingdom? If you're the king, what kind of a kingdom is it if you don't have subjects? What kind of rule or power? What kind of influence? What kind of difference do you make? What kind of king are you? Are you any king at all? He is making a people for himself. The kingdom, even though we may think of, you know, our medieval history where we see a castle and a moat and knights and subjects and serfs, that's a touchstone, but greater than that is the idea that in a kingdom, the people who are, if you will, the subjects of that king, protected by him, provided for by him, they're also characterized by him. And in a kingdom, when you think of nations, you think of people who are identified by markers such as they speak the, the, the same language. They have certain customs that set them apart. We know that you are subjects of that king. It might be by uniform or by location. But all in all, you see, God, when, he's, when it's about the kingdom of God, it's about God being God in the life of his creation distinguished by him, characterized by him. If you go to another nation or culture, you use their money. And in a way, you have to defer their language. You get your Berlitz thing, and you listen to your tapes, and you have your little dictionary, and you get a few phrases. But basically, you're trying to fit into their world. I think I've made the point that the kingdom of God has primarily to do with God 
establishing a people for himself who are set apart, who are distinguished and identified by the God of the universe. They speak his language. His customs are their customs. His ways are their ways. They feel what he feels. He protects them. He provides for them. And they yield to him because he is God. And in the Old Testament that was done, sure, they became a nation and there was a human ruler. And they had a special language. But they had the law. Which was what? What is the law? It's a reflection of God's applied to their needs in His protection and provision for them. Jesus says now, all this theme about the kingdom of God, it's about me. And Luke says, He's telling them about the kingdom of God. And he says, verse 4, while he was eating with them, gave this command. There's a reference again to that commandment of verse 2. Going back again to that occasion when Jesus gave them command to wait for the Spirit. To wait for the promise of the Father the power from on high that would clothe them. And here it's resumed because this is so important. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Obviously, on numerous occasions, in fact, we heard from John chapter 7, while we were singing and setting our hearts and kind of calibrating ourselves, kind of shaking off the world and giving our focus to the Lord, the occasion on which Jesus, this festival about water, He says, I'm the living water. And a time is coming when you'll gush with water. And we're told that He's talking about the Spirit which was to come later. Here He says, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with with the Holy Spirit. Obviously, you can be clothed, you can be baptized. When they went out to be baptized by John, John called the people to repentance and baptism was was a, a way in which they said, I am submitting to that baptism. I am repenting. I am returning to the Lord. I am returning to God. So when we talk about baptism, I remember when I was a young boy, the pastor came to my house and he talked to me about baptism and he said, baptism is like wearing a uniform. Like, he says, do you know what a sailor looks like? Yeah, I do. Do you know what an army man looks like? Yes, I do. They wear uniforms. He says, baptism is our uniform. I think that's a helpful analogy. Notice Jesus said, 
you will be clothed. Here he uses the notion of baptism. The point is, is that we are going to what? Be identified by the Holy Spirit. The power of God from on high. So when they met together again, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now this is interesting. Because uh, during Christmas we had the opportunity to look at the little bit at Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, when he broke out in praise to God, he he talked about the renewal, the restoration of Israel. When the Spirit, uh, when the angel Gabriel, through the Spirit, came and spoke to Mary and told her about the birth of Jesus, words that brought to heart the renewal of Israel. And when she sang that Magnificat, again, the renewal of the restoration of Israel. What was this all about? It was about the true people of God returning to the Lord, really typifying Him as His people. The disciples, now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, remember, they don't know the rest of the story. Now that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he has told them about this power that's going to come, that's going to clothe or baptize them, they say, is this going to be the time in which you restore Israel to be a great nation, a great people? They're thinking in political terms, probably national terms, racial terms, your people which have been oppressed and downtrodden Are you going to glorify God through bringing his people together? And this is what Jesus says in chapter 1, verse 6 and following. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He mandates them to be witnesses. And notice the scope of this. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, the scope of what God is doing is bigger than they've imagined. It can't be defined by national, by racial, by political boundaries or markers. This is a global thing. And so, he says, Luke makes very clear, they're reliable witnesses and they have been mandated to be witnesses. He says, you are my witnesses. These are in the unique and special, so to speak, position to hear from Jesus himself what they are to expect. But that is not enough. 
That is not enough. This isn't just about facts. It's about the Holy Spirit. And that is what must be impressed upon us. It's interesting, Luke makes a point, he says 40 days, and then Jesus says not many days. Well, this looks ahead, 40 and not many, they're going to round that out to 50. Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. 40 and, and not many days. In other words, this festival that's going to come that falls 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, but the occasion was the exodus in which God had delivered his people. And it was on this occasion, 50 days after the exodus, that they celebrated God's giving of the law on Sinai. Now the apostles are looking ahead to this when from on high God is going to do something great. When the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. Go back with me for just a moment to Ezekiel 36. If you can't find it, don't take the time, but listen very carefully. This is from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28. This is the kind of thing that would come to mind for the people expecting a, the great new work of God that was a part of this renewal. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And by the way, in the next chapter, chapter 2 of Acts, during that festival, the Spirit will come. You'll see all the different peoples. These are Jews who have been dispersed because they have no nation or king. They are client, they're, they're like... If you traveled the earth but you had no citizenship and, and in a sense no home that you could say was under our own control. He says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Well, what are idols but rival kings? Rivals to the throne. Rivals to supremacy. You're going to, I'm going to bring you home. You're going to be my people. I will, now this is key. This you should underline. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Mark those words. When you think of what the Spirit does, it gives you the heart of God. It gives you the mind of God. It plants within you a prompting to want to love God, please God, serve God, do the things of God, care about God. Then, notice this, he goes on to say, then you will be my people. And I will be your God. And when you put from what we read in Luke 24 right into the beginning, you see so clearly 
God is doing a significant work in Jesus Christ. He himself to his disciples said that his death was, what? For forgiveness of sins so that there should be no barrier between us and our God. And then Jesus himself says, you're going to be my witnesses. Because we don't call people to follow us, we call them to follow him. We attest to something we know. And we point to Jesus so that they can come in contact with the same reality of what God has done in Jesus and has then marked and identified as His true person through the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on here. And then in verses 6 through 11, He gives us the ascension. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him, like the two men that were at the tomb. Like the two men that were there with Jesus at the transfiguration in Luke 9. The cloud that took him up, literally, like the cloud that Jesus said would, he, the Son of Man would come again in the clouds. This cloud as He's taken up, these two men appear and give witness and say He's going to return in the same way. You see, Jesus ascends, that's why we call it the ascension, but He doesn't leave them bereft. He says, wait for the Spirit. And the Spirit comes upon them and continues the very work of Jesus, the very work of God in these first Jesus people. And then in verses uh, 12 through 26, they're restored to the twelve. I've just got to summarize this. I have lots of good. There is so much to what is presented here, but they're engaged. They're devoted in the upper room. They return a Sabbath's journey, which is two thousand cubits. About eighteen inches is a cubit from your fingertips to your elbow. Two thousand cubits. 3,000 feet, about two-thirds of a mile, they're on the Mount of Olives, so they don't have far to go. It's not a Sabbath, but he just uses that expression. And they gather in an upper room. There's about 120, which is 10 times 12. About 10 times 12, Luke literally says, which is interesting and because it gives us some sense of the following. It's wider than the apostles, and they too are in on this very beginning of what God is about to do when He pours out His Spirit. And we'll see that next week. But Jesus in this 40 days has restored Peter. And Peter stands up in the midst. 
They're praying, by the way, literally it says they are engrossed or engaged in the prayer. The prayer. Which would clearly be the prayer which was offered by the Jewish people. Devout Jews prayed three times a day. There is a set time of prayer, and they are praying as good, pious Jews. In other words, these are not, if you will, Christians. They're Christians in all the sense that we use that word, and then a lot that we <laughs> that's not designated by it, but they're, they're not Christians. They are Messianic Jews. They are devoted, full-hearted Jews who are following the Messiah. And they, unlike all of their countrymen, these are all Galileans from up north. We'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit more, but they are in Jerusalem, and they are gathered together, and they are followers of Jesus who was crucified, and the rest of the world doesn't know that he's risen from the dead. But they do. And they are in prayer, and Peter stands up and he says, we need to restore the twelfth apostle. And they pray, and they do it scripturally from two passages in Psalms. The first refers to a wicked man whom under God's judgment, his death is seen as a vacuation or a vac vacating of his home and his responsibilities. And the other passage is about, again, a wicked man and the need to replace him. And so Peter draws their attention to the Psalms and he says, we need to replace Judas. And they pray. And they, they cast lots. Generally, and we know about lots that were used, it was a way of letting God decide. And so they would put rocks, in this case two. There's a Matthias and Joseph, or Justice is Greek name. And they write their names on a rock. Maybe they're just the first letter to sing. They put them in the jar and they shake the jar after they've prayed, and they say, Lord, you decide now. Now, these men were not just uh, pulled out of thin air. They had to meet certain credentials. And when Peter prays, he says, you know our hearts. So their hearts were already right. But these two men, among what may have been others, had to have been a part of Jesus' ministry from the beginning in the sense that they were in and out in all that Jesus did. And that was striking to me because I thought, wow, there were more than 12? And in your small groups, one of the questions I wanted you to spend some time thinking about was, how did the guy who wasn't chosen feel? How did he digest that? I'd like to think that from the clues in the passage and the reality, the sense that he, along with Peter, 
along with Matthias and the others, their hearts being right before the God, before the Lord, that they knew that God was really in this. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Waiting for the Spirit. That's what they're prepared to do. Why restore the twelve? Because they had to be witnesses to the Jewish people. And uh, maybe I'll get a chance to pull some of that back into next week's message, but the twelve have powerful symbolic importance because they represent the twelve tribes of the restored Israel. And in chapter 2, when Peter stands up and addresses the crowd to explain what's going on, remember, they don't know that, you know, Jesus is risen from the dead. They don't know necessarily what God is doing in Jesus. And Peter stands up with the other 11, representative of the renewed, the true people of God. But they are to wait for the Spirit. And we are too. They were waiting chronologically for the Spirit. We don't have to wait chronologically for the Spirit, but we, we do need to wait on the Spirit in the sense to depend on the Spirit, to rely on the Spirit. There are three reasons why. The, the most important is that the Spirit is the witness to Jesus Christ. The Spirit is part of the evidence that He is risen from the dead. He would not be poured out. The Spirit would not be yours to know, to identify you as His child. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 15, and Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, we who Know Jesus Christ. We who are Jesus people, we are children. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, cries, Abba, Father, bearing witness with our spirit that we are His children. In Romans 8, verse 5, Paul says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And he contrasts that with the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, walk after the Spirit, which would be in the footsteps. Let the Spirit guide you. Let Him influence you, just as we prayed at the outset. In Ephesians 5, chapter uh, 5, verse 18, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, not inebriated by wine, under the influence of wine. Be under the influence of God. That's why I prayed Guide my thoughts. Let my thoughts be your thoughts. Set your mind on the Spirit, Romans 8. Father, let my will be your will. Fill me with your Spirit. Let me be under your influence, not under mine or the world's. Father, let my ways, my thoughts, my will be yours. Walk after the Spirit. These are all ways in which we recognize, acknowledge, appropriate, accept the power of the Spirit that is ours if we belong to Jesus Christ. This is the identity of His church. And it's where everything begins next week in Acts 2, but it's where it begins for us right now. You stand.
If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, knows what it means to be a child of God, to know Him intimately and personally, as one who loves you so much that He gave His one and only Son, that He wiped out the record of our sin. He said, there's nothing that stands between you and me because the perfect sacrifice, my very own child, sets my value on you and makes it possible for you to know me without any obstruction. And as we've learned, when Jesus departed, he wanted us to be witnesses, to know his power, this new life, this heart of flesh that has a, a desire to do God's will, is touched by his heart. If this morning you don't know that and you'd like to know more about that or receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as we sing a closing song or listen to, a clo- listen to Brian. <laughs> I'm going to be up here and some of the elders, some of the pastoral staff, if you'd like to pray with us, we invite you to come. This week, today, wait on the Spirit. Depend on Him. Not just today. Let's do it more and more. And maybe as we walk through Acts, we'll be prompted and reminded and encouraged. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people that have gone before us. And thank you above all for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we praise and thank you. And all of God's people said, Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.